Hi everyone, Glenn People speaking, and we're back with Say Hello to My Little Friend, aka The Beretacast, episode number 10, which is part two of a two-part series on the moral argument for theism, for the existence of God. So I will get straight back into it, beginning with a minor recap of where we were last time. Last time, I outlined the moral argument for theism as follows. One. If atheism is true, there cannot be objectively binding moral obligations. 2. There are objectively binding moral obligations. 3. Therefore, atheism is not true. I then began to go through the various meta-ethical options, outlining broad schools of thought on what moral judgments are and whether they can be true. In particular, last time I looked at arguments for non-cognitivism, the view that moral claims do not even mean to state facts at all, and I suggested some reasons why the arguments for those positions should not be accepted. Also, it's important to note at this point that if non-cognitivism is true, then objective moral values do not exist, because it says that moral judgments are only expressions of feeling or will, and of course everyone has different feelings and wills, and so there are no objective facts of the matter. The only way that objective moral values can exist is if some kind of cognitivism is true. That is, if there are facts that answer to moral judgments. This time, I'm moving on to look at moral cognitivism, the view that moral claims do mean to state facts, which I think is the view that most people tend to hold, unless they are philosophers, you know, that philosophers do say the darndest things sometimes. I was told once that philosophy is the professional endeavor of convincing yourself of things that you don't believe. That's not true, but sometimes you're tempted to think otherwise. Then I'll ask some fairly pointed questions about what might make those facts facts, which really gets to the point of the moral argument for the existence of God. So let's get started with cognitivism. Most people have been and are cognitivists. We think that moral judgments mean to express facts. We could be wrong, but that's at least what we're trying to do. We're trying to express facts. We think this because when we make moral judgments, that is exactly what we are seeking to do. And it seems to us that when other people make moral judgments, the same is true of them. If we mean to be stating facts about the world when we utter moral judgments, what might make them true? Most importantly, can they be true apart from any kind of theological or metaphysical grounding? This question, or perhaps this crisis, is by no means new. It lies at the heart of the ancient dispute between Plato's Socrates and Thrasymachus in the Republic. I'm not going to you know, rehash the Republic here. If you've read it, great. If not, I'll tell you what you need to know here. Thrasymachus was convinced that since 
moral terms mean nothing more than what their historical and social context bestows upon them, or more importantly, what the social bureaucracy bestows upon them, and that it is only the foolish who seriously believe that those who violate them are not merely dissenters, but actually evildoers, objectively speaking. Justice, or rather what those in power present as justice, said Thrasymachus, is simply whatever is in the interest of the powerful, and gullible people take their claims to be objectively true. This is the view that Plato saw as wrong. Socrates' position in this dialogue was that there are truths about justice and goodness that really are true, regardless of convention, since truths about goodness are grounded in the reality of something perfectly good, the forms, a rather strange concept at the heart of much of Platonic thought. Painting the polarized positions in broad strokes, John Rist says, and I quote, Plato has identified in broad terms what he believes to be the only two possible coherent attitude in the debate about moral foundations. Either moral language is more or less stable, and the proper and transcendent reference of moral terms can be inferred, or it is free-floating and ultimately arbitrary in its prescriptions, moral terms signalling only the rationalised expression of someone's perceived and even genuine needs, desires, wishes, and preferences. So he's, end quote, sorry, he's painting the difference here, and rightly so, as one between realism and anti-realism. Rist describes how Christian thinkers, uh, Augustine in particular, present something similar to Plato's moral realism while successfully getting rid of some of Plato's cumbersome and less defensible features such as the, the idea of the forms. Uh, forms not merely of things like goodness and justice but also trees, trains and bees as things consisting of quote, quality rather than substance, impersonal moreover and apparently floating free outside of the world of life. End quote. If you're not familiar with Plato's forms, um, they are the ideals. Like there are lots of, say, trains in the world, and they are good trains. Well, they weren't trains in his time, but you can imagine. They are good trains to the extent that they resemble the ideal train, the form of a train. Says Rist, the forms would exist as essentially intelligible ideas even if there were no mind human or divine to recognize them as objects objects of thought not mere constructs or concepts so that it's actually this existing idea out there of a train even if there were no one in the universe there would be this idea of a train we have all I, I'm sure heard the supposedly mysterious question what is the sound of one hand clapping but to posit such things as these forms is akin to something much more bizarre still, the actual existence of clapping in the absence of the existence of any hands. It's like a thought that exists out there without anyone thinking it. Rist observes again that, quote, the notion of an eternal object of thought without a ceaseless thinking subject is unintelligible, and it kind of is. I mean, how can you have a thought, you know, like the thoughts that you're having right now, without anyone to think them? Objects such as the forms are, for want of a better word, too weird 
for, for most people to take seriously and impossible in any way familiar to us to conceptualize or to imagine. Augustine and Christian philosophy don't need to propose any such abstract things as those thinkerless thoughts given to us by Plato. Augustine recognized that in order for there to be any thoughts at all, there must be a mind to recognize them. A mind not merely positing the ideas, but which is a being recognizing them, quote, as its own divine attributes, end quote. This renovation of the idea of forms delivers us from some of the rather embarrassing oddities of Plato. Augustine's God is a, quote, a living and self-knowing being, end quote. Hence, moral truths can exist without the oddity of having to think of them as existing without being thought. They exist because they are God's beliefs and traits. That is to say, they point to something out there in the world of human mind independent sorry, mind independent reality. They're not expressions of anything originating in the human psyche, but they can be connected to facts that would attain quite independently of what function moral claims served as means to end. So in our Regardless of how we use moral language, moral facts can exist. Their proper end, that is the proper end of moral statements, is to state facts. And we are capable of stating them wrongly. This is the element of Plato's thought that Augustine was able to adopt as compatible with his own Christian theology. Now, Rist John Rist may be correct to say that this Christianized Platonic model would succeed in providing a basis for moral realism, but I think he went too far in saying that this kind of Neoplatonic version is the only alternative to naturalism and nihilism. I mean philosophical naturalism there, atheism. There are other theistic models of ethics that, if true, would do the job just as well. For example, there's a natural law view wherein God decides to create the world in a certain way with a certain set of functions or, or a telos for creation in mind, and by virtue of those intentions, certain things are right. For example, men and women were meant by God when he made them to relate sexually to each other in certain ways, exclusive ways, and hence homosexual acts are wrong. That's one example. Or there's the view that I favor, where God's commands as the cosmic lawgiver are what make an action right. But obviously, these are options not even available to the atheist. All of these options, whichever one you choose, are only really available to the theist who believes that there is a God who can do these things. Now, my main point here has been, in these two sessions, to argue that moral realism is difficult if possible at all, I think it's impossible, to defend within an atheistic framework. However, not all cognitivists are realists. Some cognitivists who think that moral claims are claims about facts, that's what a cognitivist is, happen to think that all those claims are false, every single one of them, because there are no moral facts. So they're still a cognitivist, but they're not a realist, because they don't believe that there are any moral truths. Now that's what you call an error theory, because every factual, every sorry, every moral claim is erroneous. Another word for it is nihilism, and it's a kind of anti-realism. So it contributes to what I'm doing here to outline some arguments for anti-realism or nihilism in this case, 
and then explain why I think those arguments fail, because I do believe that there are moral facts. I'll look at two arguments here, the argument from relativity or diversity, and then the more important argument, I think anyway, the argument from queerness. So, the argument from diversity or relativity, I actually presented this argument in our last episode as an argument for non-cognitivism, but it is just as easily, although I think just as unsuccessfully, used as an argument for an error theory or nihilism, working in a very similar way as it was used by the expressivists, and it works as follows. There is widespread disagreement about alleged moral facts, as opposed to non-moral facts. So people disagree more about morality than they do about regular facts. And this fact, it is said, is best explained by the fact that actually there just are no moral facts. Okay, so that's the argument. It's an argument to the best explanation. The thing to notice, again, as, as last time, is that the alleged phenomenon is highly questionable as to whether it really exists. The evidence suggests that people agree on moral claims just as much as they do on fact claims in general. So this phenomenon is not a real phenomenon to be explained at all. Uh, equally dubious, if not more so, is the suggestion that diversity of opinion shows or even strongly suggests that there just is no fact of the matter. That's not how we normally think. Um, I mean, the supposition that whether or not there is a fact of the matter can be determined by observing, I'm sorry, observing the fact that there is a consensus or not is absurd. There was a time when there was no consensus on the shape of the earth. It wasn't in the 14th century, despite what secular, secular wannabe historians might say. But there was a time when there wasn't a consensus on the shape of the earth. But no self-respecting astronomer will, will say, well, that must mean that during that period of time, the best explanation was that the earth had no shape. That would be absurd. Uh, from time to time in American politics, we might hear reference to what the framers of the Constitution intended to mean. It's fairly obvious that there is a diversity of opinion on that matter. But it, it would seem unbelievable to suggest that this fact is best explained by the fact that the framers of the Constitution had no intentions in what they meant. So this relativistic argument to the best explanation just fails. It's not very persuasive at all. Uh, I'll be back in just a moment to look at the next argument for anti-realism. Greetings, world, and welcome to the Gorilla Radio Show. The informal and sometimes inappropriate philosophy talk show. Bringing philosophy to the masses. Check out our website at www.gorillaradioshow.com for monthly episodes, exciting programming, and prizes. The Gorilla Radio Show. The only place where laughter and independent thought are the two highest goods. All right, now the second argument for anti-realism that I'm going to look at right now is the argument from queerness. It's an argument for nihilism, for the claim that there are no moral facts. I think it's the most persuasive argument for moral nihilism, not because I think it is sound, it is not, but because it is valid and because it appeals to premises that its atheistic audience is likely to accept. In fact, Mackey presented three arguments from queerness, only one of which I'm calling the argument from queerness here. Uh, 
However, his other varieties of, of queerness arguments are worth noting. Mackey said that moral beliefs are epistemically queer. Uh, if something is epistemic, it has to do with the way that we gain or the way that we form beliefs. He said this since he thought that our regular views of knowing things only include sensory perception or introspection or the framing and confirming of explanatory hypotheses or inferences or logical construction or conceptual analysis or any combination of these, end quote. But since, according to Mackey, what people describe when they talk about acquiring moral beliefs involves none of these methods of acquiring knowledge, doing so, quote, would have to be by some special faculty of moral perception or intuition, utterly different from our ordinary ways of knowing everything else, end quote. But since it is, quote, easy to point out the implausibilities, end quote, of moral intuition as a special epistemological method, we cannot have knowledge of moral facts. Now there are several ways that I could respond to this argument. Firstly, I could just say that actually at least some moral facts are learned by sensory perception or introspection or the framing and confirming of explanatory hypotheses or inferences or logical construction or conceptual analysis or any combination of these. Maybe intuition really is a kind of introspection. In fact, that's always what I've taken it to be. But if Mackey intends that introspection be construed so as to rule this out, perhaps someone has a careful argument for the existence of God and reasons to suppose that God wills certain behavior and not other kinds. That would be an argument for, you know, that would be an epistemology of moral facts. You could know moral truths that way. Um, or perhaps one might dispute the claim that we can easily show that intuitionism is implausible. I find it quite plausible. If there are moral facts, and if we are constructed in such a way as to naturally apprehend them, just like ordinary sense perception, by a unique function of the mind, then moral intuitionism would not be implausible at all. The fact that Mackey did not think this was plausible was due, I suspect, to the force of his metaphysical argument from queerness his argument against there being such facts in the first place that could be intuited. I'll come to that argument shortly, because it really is the main one. The second type of queerness that moral facts would have, says Mackey, is their curious psychological power to motivate us to act. Moral facts would have, quote, power when known automatically to influence the will. Now, I won't cover that here, because it's the same argument that I covered in my last episode because it's really just Hume's argument from moral motivation and I explained in episode 9 why I think that's not very persuasive. So I'll, I'll move on to the most important argument here. I take Mackey's most significant argument from queerness to be his metaphysical argument. Moral facts, supposing that there were any, he said, would just be weird, for lack of a better word, or queer, as he says. The argument is simple. Given that the undesigned, uncreated, unintended physical universe is all that there is, just what are moral facts supposed to be? There is no way that things are ultimately meant to be, since there is no one to have such intentions, since the universe is, to cite Carl Sagan's famous saying, all that there is, 
all that there ever has been and all that there ever will be, moral facts or properties cannot be anything of any sort. In what metaphysical space could they exist? In fact, rather than a positive argument, this looks to me like uh, the argument here really consists of questions like these ones. It's a challenge. Where, where are these moral facts, he says? What could they be? Unless others can answer Mackey's questions, he seems to have thought, then they are unanswerable and there are no moral facts. He says, and I quote, what is the connection between the natural fact that an act is a piece of deliberate cruelty, say, causing pain just for fun, and the moral fact that it is wrong? It cannot be an entailment, a logical or semantic necessity, yet it is not merely that the two features occur together. The wrongness must somehow be consequential or supervenient. It is wrong because it is a piece of deliberate cruelty. But just what in the world is signified by this because? How much simpler and more comprehensible the situation would be if we could replace the moral quality with some sort of subjective response, which could be causally related to the detection of the natural features on which the supposed quality is said to be consequential. Another way of putting this, that's the end of the quote, by the way, another way of putting this is that what Mackey offers is an argument from silence. Mackey does not have a way of explaining how natural facts could give rise to moral facts, and so, he says, natural facts do not give rise to moral facts. Just as an aside here, and this is a potentially confusing uh, terminology used by philosophers, yeah, who would have thought, by natural facts, I, I, some people might use that word differently, but I do not mean only facts compatible with metaphysical naturalism or atheism. I mean natural in the sense in which that term is sometimes employed when talking about ethical naturalism. That is, a kind of moral realism in which moral facts are generated by facts other than moral ones. And those facts are features of the world. That's what we, I mean by natural. Whether naturalistic or supernaturalistic, like div divine commands or intentions. So ironically, a divine command is a natural fact, because it's a fact out there in the world. So that's what I mean by natural facts here. Now, in the process of making the, the argument that I've just outlined, the argument from queerness, Mackey appears, appeals to the fact that moral facts are not semantically or logically necessitated by natural facts and that they are not entailed by natural facts. This is, is just where many non-nihilists balk at what he says. And so it is just here that Mackey must be probed. To say that uh, moral facts are not semantically or logically necessitated by natural facts is to talk about the logical and semantic autonomy or independence of ethics. Now, the logical and semantic autonomy or de independence of ethics can be fairly succinctly defended, and hopefully the listener who's not familiar with those terms will very soon see what they mean. Hume, again, David Hume, is thought to have done a perfectly adequate job of defending the logical autonomy of ethics. His argument is short, so I'll just quote it here. He says, In every system of morality which I have hitherto met with, I have always remarked 
that the author proceeds for some time in the ordinary way of reasoning, and establishes the being of a god, or makes observations concerning human affairs, when, all of a sudden, I am surprised to find that instead of the usual copulations of propositions, copulations of propositions, I hadn't noticed that before, is and is not, I meet with no proposition that is not connected with an ought, or an ought not. This change is imperceptible, but is, however, of the last consequence, that means of the final or most important consequence. He goes on, For as this ought, or ought not, expresses some new relation or affirmation, tis necessary that it should be observed and explained, and at the same time that a reason should be given for what seems altogether inconceivable, how this new relation can be a deduction from others, which are entirely different from it. So let me explain what he means there. If all the premises of an argument are is statements, statements of fact, then, Hume says, an ought conclusion, like you ought to, is something entirely new. But that's not how logic works. In any logically deductive argument, the conclusion must somehow be contained in the premises. Uh, you, you can sum that up by saying you only get out what you put in. From purely non-moral premises you will get, says Hume, a non-moral conclusion. For example, 1. John hit Gertrude in the forehead with a hammer. 2. Hitting Gertrude in the forehead with a hammer caused pain. 3. Therefore it was wrong for John to hurt, hit Gertrude in the forehead with a hammer. Now that's an invalid argument, because the idea of wrongness just appears ex nihilo, out of nothing, in the conclusion, and it's not in any of the premises. Now this objection to this argument is the logical autonomy of ethics. Ethical statements are logically autonomous of non-ethical statements. Of course, this isn't to say that you can't reach moral conclusions deductively. For example, uh, it is always wrong to do what God forbids. God forbids X. Therefore, we can validly deduce that it is wrong to do X. But here, the premises themselves contain moral claims, namely, it is always wrong to do what God forbids. Also obvious is that the logical autonomy of ethics does not undermine ethical realism, because some realists are intuitionists, who don't even attempt to infer moral conclusions deductively. But it is just here that I want to suggest that the anti-realist argument, turning on the logical autonomy of ethics, goes astray. In naturalism, it's ethical naturalism, the kind that I described just recently, moral facts are, or are the result of, natural facts, that is, facts about the world, even facts about God, because that's a fact about the world outside of my mind. It's the exterior world that I'm talking about. Now, either of these facts will, uh, possibilities will do. You know, moral facts are natural facts, or they result from natural facts. Any view like that is ethical naturalism. If ought is a natural property after all, like the property of having been designed or intended to live in a certain way, that's a natural property, then actually going from is premises to ought conclusions is just a case of going from is statements to is statements. Because if that's what morality is, then morality is an is statement, as well as an ought statement. Okay? You follow that? Take, for example, the property of being contrary to the commands of God. If that is actually what moral wrongness is, 
if that's what moral wrongness consists of, then to speak of something being wrong is to speak of a natural property, namely the property of being contrary to the commands of God. It's an is statement. Or take the property of doing what we were meant to do. Now that's a natural property. Meant here just means intended and refers to the created order and the human species having a proper telos or a goal or a thing which we were meant to do. So if ought statements are just meant to be is statements, so if ethical naturalism is true, then on some understandings of the logical autonomy of ethics, the logical autonomy of ethics does not exist. And it's not a problem at all. Go back to the example of being hit in the head with a hammer. John hit Gertrude in the head with a hammer. Hitting Gertrude in the head with a hammer is contrary to that which we ought to do, that, namely that which we were designed to do. Therefore it was wrong for John to hit Gertrude in the forehead with a hammer. That's a valid argument. And you are getting a moral premise from purely factual, sorry, a moral conclusion from purely factual premises. Okay. As far as Mackey's claim that moral judgments cannot be semantic necessities is concerned, that is, moral terms just can't have identical definitions to non-moral terms, uh, in the interest of time, I'll just grant that. Uh, because other moral realists tend to do the same, and I think it's easy just to grant it, and it makes sense to grant it, so I will. But there is something lurking here beyond the claim that moral facts could not just mean this or that, or they could not be this or that. The queerness objection is the claim that moral claims are just so different from anything else that we know of that we cannot take them seriously. Ethical naturalists, if they are philosophical naturalists as well, that is atheists, that's how I'm using that term here, they have no explanatory story to tell how it could be that we are, as a matter of fact, meant to do certain things. I think that this really is the heart of the argument. I think what we're seeing is a psychological appeal. Charles Pigden, who I referred to in the last episode, sums up the argument quite succinctly and effectively, suggesting an argument from silence or a failure to explain something when he says... In what way are values so opprobriously queer? Their queerness consists in this. They are fundamentally at odds with the scientific worldview, impossible to accommodate within a materialistic or physicalist ontology. There is no room for objective moral qualities or relations in this strictly materialist universe. Scientific implausibility is a brand of queerness which cannot be ignored, and is perhaps intolerable. End quote. Now there is kind of a language game going on there. Uh, the term scientific worldview is taken to entail philosophical naturalism, which is bunk. But set that aside. Notice, Pigden does not merely say that moral values are unsearchable by scientific methods, or beyond the realm of scientific inquiry. He says instead that they are at odds with it. In itself, I consider this use of language to be a little bit unscientific, but the point is obvious. The argument appears to be as follows. 1. 
belief in moral facts entails a, an appeal to things that cannot be accounted for by philosophical naturalism. 2. Any appeal to things that cannot be accounted for by philosophical naturalism is so queer as to be unbelievable. 3. Hence the existence of moral facts is so queer as to be unbelievable. Okay, the premise that the presenter of this argument is banking on his audience accepting is obviously two. Any appeal to things that cannot be accounted for by philosophical naturalism is so queer as to be unbelievable. In fact, in the lecture I, I was in attendance at, when Charles Pigton was speaking, he called moral values spooky. <laughs> premise one is the thing that the error theorist will invest all his time trying to show. Belief in moral facts entails an appeal to things that cannot be accounted for by philosophical naturalism. Premise 2 is an appeal not to demonstrable facts or observable phenomena, but to prejudices. You think so? Yep. Here's why. Consider other ways that the queerness type of argument might be used. 1. Moral facts are ruled out by philosophical naturalism. 2. When I say that it is morally wrong to break into my house murder my children, and rape my wife, I am stating a moral fact. 3. Consequently, the claim that it is morally wrong to break into my house, murder my children, and rape my wife, is ruled out by philosophical naturalism. This gives us the following disjunction. Either philosophical naturalism is false, or it is not morally wrong to break into my house, murder my children, and rape my wife. Now, if we are to decide the issue simply by presenting the above statement and then asking, which option seems more queer to you, the outcome will not go Mackey's way. At least I hope it doesn't. In fact, the very type of queerness of the claim that such outrageous acts are not wrong is itself used as an argument for theism in the moral argument. It goes like this. Since some moral facts just seem so obvious... And given that moral facts are ruled out by philosophical naturalism, philosophical naturalism must be false. So let's now look at some objections to this presentation. The only effective objections to the claim made in this presentation are those that are prepared to argue that objective moral truth can still exist, even if God does not. So I will consider a few such arguments here. A philosopher, a moral, philo moral philosopher named Walter Sinnott Armstrong replied directly to Mackey's metaphysical queerness argument against morality. He rose to the challenge. Now, Walter Sinnott Armstrong is an atheist, by the way. In fact, I think there's a published debate between Sinnott Armstrong and William Lane Craig on the existence of God. Uh, that's just a side comment. In fact, he thinks that the argument answer here is an easy one. He says, and I quote, It's not hard to specify the relation between moral facts and non-moral facts. That relation is supervenience. End quote. But how useful is this, given that to supervene on something is just to depend on it? All this tells us is that the relationship between moral and non-moral facts is that the former depend on the latter. But how could this be so? That was the point of Mackey's challenge. Sinnott Armstrong makes a couple of attempts at describing how it would work, 
but those attempts merely served to exemplify the problem that Mackey identified. In fact, the only time that he suggests how moral facts might supervene on non-moral facts is when he says that supervenience is just analytic. That means, basically it means true by definition, because, quote, it is one of a network of truisms that determine the meaning of moral terms. He explains, We could not classify acts as morally right and wrong in the way that we do if there were no descriptive differences between acts that are morally right and those that are morally wrong. Moreover, we could not follow moral advice if we could not distinguish those acts that follow that advice from those that do not. Now, there are two claims here, the latter of which is just irrelevant and the former of which is just false. We could follow advice that purported to be moral, uh, provided it was clear enough, but so what? It hardly follows as a truism that by following that advice we really are doing what is moral. I mean, people can give bad advice, can't they? The very thing in question is whether or not any moral advice can point to the truth. The former claim, that is the first claim here, is just not true. Of course we could classify acts into right and wrong categories, even if there were no genuine descriptive difference between morally right and wrong acts. We just couldn't make that classification correctly. Senator Armstrong appears to be making the crazy assumption that if we can go through the motions of classifying things into moral and non-moral, then we must be correct, and there really must be moral and non-moral facts. But that's just silly. There is no reason to believe this. So I don't think that this is a serious non-religious argument for the existence of moral facts. It should be clear that arguments for moral realism are not necessarily explanations of how moral facts can exist or of what ultimately constitutes a moral fact. We can recognize moral facts without understanding all those complexities. I mean, gosh, an eight-year-old can, on many occasions, know what is right and wrong. That doesn't mean they can give a, a detailed account of what constitutes moral rightness or wrongness. Now, this fact is not lost on a philosopher named Christian Illes, who is himself a moral realist. After 192 pages of argument in favor of moral realism, that is, argument that we should believe moral realism is correct, he then spends six pages on the question of how there could be things that we call moral facts and what ontologically could provide the facts in question. While Illes is sure that there are moral facts, and he thinks there are many reasons to believe that there are moral facts, he concedes that in the end, explaining how this might be metaphysically possible is a pretty tough nut to crack. He notes that some philosophers have dismissed the ontological problem on the basis of a coherent sorry coherence view of truth try not to burp while i'm speaking cl claiming that any inquiry about correspondence is illegitimate so in other words they say let's just get all our beliefs to cohere let's make sure they're consistent some might say and not indulge in any presumption of knowing anything about reality as it is but even if we took this road unpromising though I think it would be. I think a coherentist approach to tr truth is just nonsense, but I won't go into that. Illes is correct to observe that, quote, there is still the challenge of explaining the possibility of harmonizing the picture of a mind-independent world with our beliefs, 
beliefs obtained through a justification that is independent of any correspondence. How, he asks, asks of moral facts, do they fit into the picture of the world we normally have? In other words, coherentism is not a saviour for this problem, because the very nature of the problem is one of coherence. The idea of moral facts does not seem to cohere with this thing that he calls a mind-independent world, and even more evasively, the picture of the world we normally have. The picture of the world he normally has, namely atheism. He says that we, he says, we can know moral facts, sure, but the question of how they are possible at all eludes him, just because they don't seem to cohere with that kind of world. He postulates that perhaps the universe just is such that, quote, the same principles may well structure reason itself and be keyed into the way the world is. You know philosophers are starting to get desperate when they use words like keyed. What the heck does that mean here? If the world is structured by the same principles that underlie reasoning, he says, then, quote, this would account for our ability to grasp rationality, sorry, to grasp rationally the things which are independent of our thinking. End quote. So when we reason, he says, we tap into the way the world really is, just because the way the world really is happens to be shaped by the same things that shape our thinking, our reasoning. So in seeking to offer an ontological solution, that is, a metaphysical or real-world solution for what moral things are, Illes falls back into epistemology, the theory of knowledge, trying to explain how we can know moral facts if the universe is a certain way, and he never again returns to the question of how such facts could be facts at all, wisely so, because it's so difficult. Even with respect to his metaphysical account of of how we know, as outlined just previously, he concedes the obvious. I do not claim by any means that this metaphysical picture of the world could easily be made plausible. My own position is that the ontological situation is not so much obscure as it is distasteful to many, because it involves going into territory that atheism simply can't go into. Russ Schaefer-Landau says that, quote, most people think that if moral rules are objective, then they must have been authored by God, end quote. This includes, he says, those, quote, who embrace moral skepticism, just because they believe that the only escape from it is to God, whom they reject, end quote. For this reason, Schaefer-Landau calls the principal argument of such people the argument from atheism, quote, it says that ethics is objective only if God exists, but God does not exist, therefore ethics isn't objective, end quote. And he's right, that's a major argument. You will have detected that that's the fundamental argument in my presentation. However, Schaefer Landau says that in his own experience, quote, People tie objectivity to God because of a very specific line of thought. The basic idea is that all laws, rules, principles, standards, etc., require a lawmaker. So if there are any moral laws, then these too require a lawmaker. But if these moral laws are objective, the lawmakers can't be any, can't be any one of us. That's just true by definition. Objectivity implies an independence from human opinion. Well, if objective moral rules aren't authored by any one of us, then who did make them up? Three guesses. End quote. 
Now, that's not precisely how the argument in my presentation has been constructed, but there are obvious similarities. Instead of talking about things called laws or rules and then asking who authored them, I've been more concerned with what moral facts are and how they could be what they are in the absence of theological facts. But to the extent that I have been talking about normativity, the, um, the comparison with laws is quite fair. Neither the theist nor the atheist should accept the argument from atheism, says Schaeffer-Landau, since laws do not really require lawmakers after all. That's his solution. Uh, quote, since atheists can easily accept the existence of some, of at least some objective laws, e.g. laws of physics or chemistry, they should deny that laws require authors. But once we get rid of that view, there is no reason at all to suppose that objective moral rules require God's existence. End quote. So this is his response to nihilism. At least one important response to Schaeffer-Landau seems obvious. As I have outlined the argument from metaphysical naturalism to moral nihilism, and using the language of rules here for Schaeffer-Landau's sake, the claim is that there are moral the, sorry the claim is that moral rules are problematic in metaphysical naturalism, not not simply because they are rules, but because they are normative. They do not like the laws of physics, simply tell us what will happen or what to expect. That's not normative. They tell us what we should do, and in doing so they express intent. There's the difference between moral laws and laws of science. Hence, Schaeffer Landau has made a poor comparison. He has anticipated this response, however. He has to come back already. So he replies, I disagree. The best reason for thinking that moral laws require an author is that all laws require an author. But that reason, as we've seen, is mistaken. What other reason could there be? I don't think that there is one, or at least not one that works. Not all normative laws require lawmakers. For example, the laws of logic and rationality are normative. They tell us what we ought to do, but no one invented them. If you, had, if you have excellent evidence for one claim, and this entailed a second claim, then you should believe that second claim. If you are faced with contradictory, proposi contradictory propositions, and know that one of them is false, then you must accept the other. If you want just one thing out of life, then you ought to do what's necessary to achieve it. None of these are moral principles, but they are normative ones. If you are an atheist, you'll deny that God made up such principles, if any principles are objective, these are. So we have here objective, authorless, normative laws. Objective principles, scientific or normative, need no authors. Now, end of quote, he's wrong. These are not normative. He's using that word wrongly. Recall the distinction I made in, in my last presentation in episode 9, which is a distinction made by all moral philosophers because... The various, because of the various ways of using words like ought or should. Now, Russ Schaeffer-Landau has just ignored these distinctions. In other words, he's engaged in, in equivocation. When he says that if you have excellent evidence for one claim, and this entails a second claim, then you should believe that second claim, what he says is only true if he is talking about the rational ought, a means to an end ought. It's not a moral ought. 
if Schaffer-Lander wants to say that this is the sort of ought we should be concerned about when it comes to morality, then he's no longer talking about objective laws at all, or normative ones. If I want to cut off your head, then I ought to use a sharp instrument. If you want to be a successful rapist, then you ought to master the element of surprise. But if you want to make the world a happier place, then perhaps you ought to give to charity. Or if you want peace with God, then according to many, you ought to become a Christian. But these are not moral oughts. They're not normative. They're just rational means to end oughts. So he's equivocating here between different kinds of oughts. Now, if he takes issue with that and insists that, no, no, really, this is something which, regardless of what you want to do, you really ought morally to do this. You ought to obey the laws of logic, and that's a moral duty. Then what he's saying is not true. What is so normative about these laws? Who says you ought to be rational or follow the laws of logic? That's not a moral ought at all. Is there some grand ethical principle that says we should never believe something contrary to the evidence, and so forth? Certainly there are those who have thought so. Uh, William Clifford put it most memorably when he said, It is immoral to have faith, to prejudge matters before one has evidence. And famously he said, To sum up, it is wrong, always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Now, if that's what Schaffer-Lander has in mind, then it's obvious that he is begging the question. Effectively, he would be saying, we know that ethical rules don't require a rule-maker because we can compare them to these ethical rules and they don't require a rule-maker. Well, according to whom? If they're objective ethical rules, then according to this argument, they do need a rule-maker. So either he's equivocating and treating certain laws as normative when they aren't, or else he's begging the question, because the norms that he has in mind are themselves moral norms and subject to the very dispute in question. But either way, he hasn't responded to the argument from ethical, sorry, from metaphysical naturalism to nihilism. He failed. So here we are at the end of the journey. Let's take a step back now and look at what has been covered in these two sessions thus far. I want to draw all the threads together hopefully so you can see how it all makes sense. Firstly, if moral judgments can only be expressions of will or emotion or something else, then they are not attempts to state moral facts. But moral claims are attempts to state moral facts, and arguments to the contrary are not convincing. Moreover, if non-cognitivism, that is the view that moral claims are, are not statements of fact, if that's the right approach, then there are no objective moral values, because there are no objective moral facts. Secondly, if morality is about the truth or falsehood of moral claims, so we've decided to adopt cognitivism, then in order for any moral claim to be true, it must correspond to facts about reality, and it must result in a fact about a duty that we have, an ought claim. Thirdly, if metaphysical naturalism or atheism is true, then no premises that are statements of facts about reality will result in a conclusion that is an ought statement, a statement of moral duty. Therefore, 
we must choose the more plausible of two options. Either there is absolutely no act that you can come up with that is morally wrong. Genocide, sexual torture, serial rape and murder, you name it. Or alternatively, philosophical naturalism or atheism is false. If, like me, you find the former option to be absurd, then this commits us to the soundness of the following argument. 1. If atheism is true, there cannot be objectively binding moral obligations. 2. But there are objectively binding moral obligations. 3. Therefore, atheism is not true. And this, my friends, is the moral argument for the existence of God. And so this answers the second question that I asked in the first episode. The first question was, what is the moral argument? The second was, does it work? And the answer is yes. So there you have it, my two-part presentation on the moral argument. As always, I absolutely welcome your feedback and your comments on anything that has been said in today's episode. Send your emails to podcast at beretta-online.com and, and again, no one's done this yet, but send it as an audio clip if you like so I can play your question on the show. Now, it's been a little while since we've had one of these, so let's go for this. That's right, it's the podcast roundup, although remember that I've expanded this to include not just podcasts, but pretty much anything on the internet. Uh, so let's start with this one from the Daily Atheist blog. They, they're citing a headline here from the telegraph.co.uk, which I'll go to. Headline, Christianity could die out within a century. <gasps> Research by the Orthodox Jewish organization Aish found that just over a third of people, people thought religions like Christianity and Judaism would still be practiced in Britain in 100 years' time. Just over a third of people thought that. That's not many. Now, given what Christians, Jews and Muslims as well, not sure about British Jews, ah, probably, given what these people actually believe about the future, it's a pretty safe bet that the third of people being referred to here are religious. And as for what the average, not particularly religious person on the street thinks about the future of religion, I guess the thing to ask is, what resources exactly are they using to make this prediction? I mean, the mind boggles. Do they have a crystal ball? This was an internet poll conducted by YouGov. I can speak from experience on the reliability of online polls, but let's, let's just imagine that it had been, say, a telephone poll. Hello? Hello, my name is Mukesh. I'm calling on behalf of YouGov, and I would like to ask you a few questions. Is this a good time? Oh, yeah. Well, right there, if it won't take too long. Thank you, sir. Do you think that religions like Christianity and Judaism and Islam will still be practiced in England in 100 years? How the f**k should I know? I'm a plumber from Dorset, not a bleeding fortune teller. Okay, so shall I put that down as a yes, no, or maybe? Oh, f monkey. Why can't they hire a f**king Englishman? I shall put that down as a no. Well, that settles it. Christianity is doomed in the next 100 years. The atheist bloggers are going to love this. Oh, okay. Well, 
in my own defence, at the content of that, I, <laughs> Englishmen will be Englishmen. Uh, moving right along, uh, ABC News. Sorry, not ABC News. ABC Action News. God was arrested for selling cocaine near a church in Tampa, Florida. Blasphemy! I hear you say no. Apparently, this is true. Tampa, Florida. Quoting from the ABC Action News now. Whether his name is a blessing or a curse, the man named God Lucky Howard was arrested by undercover detectives for selling cocaine in his neighborhood. <laughs> I kid you not, ABC Action News, check it out. Uh, on that note, relatively short blog roundup this time. I think that'll be all for me. I may say something that will get me into trouble. Check us out next time. Not quite sure what the next episode will be about. I guess you'll just have to wait and find out when. When I find out, I'll let you know. Uh, but until then, it's time to say goodbye from say hello to my little friend.